Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 42 on February 17th, 2022. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, and YouTube. The audio podcast is indexed on iTunes and the video version is on YouTube. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor, and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Today, I am interviewing Mr. Edward Marasco, the Vice President of Business Development for QuickMed Claims, and we will be discussing balanced billing and the No Surprises Act that went into effect on January 1st, 2022. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. Remember that Air Medical Today is also a video podcast. As always, you can listen to the podcast and now watch it on Air Medical Today YouTube channel. With the video podcast, you can sometimes see pictures that are referenced during the podcast. The link to the channel is on the Air Medical Today website. Uh, I apologize again for not being able to post to Pinterest as Air Medical Today does, does have many followers there. As I mentioned in previous podcasts, their application programming interface or API limit is for only three posts a day. And as followers know, there are many more posts than that each day. Also on the Air Medical Today Instagram site, you can see all the posts with the URL to the news site, but the links are not clickable. This is just how Instagram works, unfortunately. If you have not listened to past podcasts, please take the time to do so. There's a wealth of information from some of the key leaders in air medical and EMS transport. Please tune into this informative and timeless podcast. I would also like to thank the followers of Air Medical Today on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, and YouTube. To date, Air Medical Today has 30,634 likes or followers, and it keeps growing. Thank you. It is my pleasure to welcome Mr. Edward Marasco to the podcast today. I have known Ed for many years from when we worked together through the Association of Air Medical Services and the Medical Transport Leadership Institute. Ed is currently the Vice President of Business Development for QuickMed Claims, which provides revenue cycle management and consulting services for medical transport organizations nationwide. Previously, he was Regional Vice President of Hospital-Based Services for Air Methods Corporation after the acquisition of CJ Systems. At CJ, Ed served as the Vice President for Air Medical Services. He served 13 years 
at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in various administrative position, and had also served as vice president and chief operating officer of emergency resource management, a subsidiary of, of the um, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and as a board member of the STAT Medevac program. He received his BS degree in secondary education from the University of Pittsburgh and an MPM degree from the H.J. Hines School of Public Policy and Management at Carnegie Mellon University. In addition, Ed was certified as an emergency medical technician, paramedic in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He has more than 15 years of pre-hospital clinical experience and more than 35 years of healthcare management experience. Ed has been actively involved with various industry professional organizations for more than 35 years. He served as a member of the Association of Air Medical Services Fixed Wing Committee and the Finance and Reimbursement Committee. Ed also served on the board of Ames as the chairman of the Finance and Reimbursement Committee and more than four year, uh, for more than four years. He represented the Association of Air Medical Services in the negotiated rulemaking process to establish the new ambulance reimbursement fee schedule for the Medicare program. Ed also serves on the boards of several healthcare organizations, including his present role as the chairman of the board at Jefferson Hospital, a subsidiary of the Allegheny Health Network. He also serves on the West Penn Allegheny Health System, the Medivac Foundation International, and the Jefferson Regional Foundation. He is one of the founding members for the Cures for Kids Foundation and also an adjunct instructor of rehabilitation science and technology in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast, Ed. Uh, it's really great to have you here. I know you're really busy with work, so thanks for taking the time. Yeah, Edward, it's always great to it's always great to be with you. I'm I'm going to enjoy uh, spending some time. We don't get to catch up nearly enough, so uh, I I know it. Uh, time just uh, goes by, and we've known each other quite a long time too. So yeah, we um, want to give that away. They'll know our age. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I just celebrated a big birthday uh, last Saturday. So. Um, like I always do on these, I and, and I learn so much too, is that I'd like to uh, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and, you know, what your background is and not just that, you know, they've only known you in one job or two. So um, let's, let's talk a little bit about your uh, personal life. You're originally uh, from uh, near Pittsburgh, McKeesport, Pennsylvania. Uh, what were your early years like? Oh, gosh, it was, a, you know, much like you, it was a steel town, right? In those days, you know, everybody worked in the steel mill. You graduated from high school, and that's what you did. And I was one of the few in my in my family circle. And we, I came from two really big families, so I had tons of cousins that I was raised with. And, and uh, it's kind of funny. Everybody went to work in the mill, and I didn't. I went off to the University of Pittsburgh. It was actually uh, uh, interesting. I was headed to law school, so I, had, I decided to do secondary educa education undergrad, and uh, that never happened. I fell in love with EMS, but it was great growing up there. It was a nice blue collar town, you know, uh, lots of family around. Yeah, yeah. I, I was real surprised because that's one thing I did not know about you is that uh, you actually were accepted at a couple of law schools and that you didn't do that. And when I, when I look back at the things that I've known you about, I, I could see kind of that legal mind that you have. So uh, 
why was it just the, uh, your love of EMS that got you away from going to to uh, law school? It really was. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, my father, until he passed away, that was my kids would love that. They would say, hey, Pat, didn't dad get accepted <laughs> to law school? And he would say, oh, yeah, you know, letters written from congressmen <laughs> and all that stuff. Had a job in Las Vegas. My uncle well, I was a practicing attorney, went to Las Vegas in 1960 with my aunt. And, and so, you know, I had an offer to join the firm, you know, the family firm. My cousin actually um, worked in the family firm until his folks passed away. Yeah. So my dad, he used to always grouse around about that. You know, you didn't go, you never went. <laughs> was you, were you expected to come back and be a, an attorney for the firm? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That <laughs> yeah. was it. Yeah. Yeah. That was the deal. Yeah. So, so set up for life. So your, your degree, though, was in secondary education. What was the reason for that? Yeah, it's kind of funny. As you're looking, you know, a lot of young people are looking at different degrees now, and it's so hard. You know, when you're young, you're trying to make a decision. But I wanted to have a fallback in case I didn't get in. So pre-law was one of those things that buttonholed you is, you know, you had to get accepted or not. And I thought, well, if I did education, uh, I could find a job. There were lots of teaching jobs in those days, and uh, so I would not be stuck. And of course, that was, you know, my dad was one of those guys, you got to have a plan, you know, you got to have a plan B. Um, so yeah, that was, it was mostly a plan B. I love to teach. I, I love it today. I still enjoy it um, a great deal. So it actually worked out really well for me. Yeah, I, I think I did know that about you. And of course, you know, we work together. We'll talk about MTLI, but um, you're a, an excellent teacher too. So uh, you've, you've used those, uh, those skills. So um you talked a little bit that you went into healthcare. So how did you then go into the healthcare? What was the, the impetus? I mean, was it, uh, I think you worked as an EMT. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. It was kind of funny as a young, as a young guy, I was on a school trip actually and encountered, uh, uh unfortunately, uh, a boy drowned in a hotel swimming pool. Oh, and, uh, and I was there and, uh, with another colleague, um, and we started CPR. I, we had taken, you know, a CPR class at school in those days. And, and actually, he went on to become an emergency physician, um, as it stands. But, uh, I, you know, I sort of got involved. And then, you know, like, like most people of that era, you know, you're watching TV, the, the, you know, the show Emergency was on. Right. And I sort of got enamored with it. And then uh, in high school, I was looking for a summer job and got a job as a lifeguard. And here you, you get um, you went for CPR training to get recertified at the local rescue squad. And as it turns out, they were they were running an advanced first aid class. So they said, hey, you guys aren't going to probably do much CPR up there at the pool. But, you know, you're probably going to have people with cuts and bruises and maybe you know, someone might fall and need splinted. So you should think about this class. So a couple of the lifeguards, we took it. And uh, and actually, all of us, all the all the folks who took advantage of it, spent a stint in EMS. And uh, and so when we got out of the class at the end of the summer, they said, "Here's an application. You can join the rescue squad." And I did, and that was it. Kind of fell in love and did it there. It was a smaller community where I did it, so the call volume. I think it was, gosh, it might have been 350 calls a year, so barely, you know, not even one a day. Mm -hmm. But McKeesport had a busier system. It was several thousand calls a year. Uh, you know, a lot more, a lot more variety. And, uh, so I ended up over there for a while and got more experience and, uh, and then found a job where I could actually get paid for it for a little while. We had a, there was a woman who used to come to the pool with her kids every day. And, uh, and when you're running with the rescue squad, as you probably know, in those days where volunteerism was kind of waning, 
the daylight shifts were tough to staff. So there was a couple of us that had done what I did, you know, went to the first aid class and joined the rescue squad. So we would take the ambulance up to the pool during the day. And if a call came in, we would leave, you know, one or two of us would leave and we'd go respond to the call to cover the day shift. And so she saw the ambulance out there and she said, are you guys EMTs? I said, yeah. She said, we're, you know, she was the business manager for a private ambulance service and they were looking to hire people. And so they did. As it turned out, the reason they were hiring uh, was because they had gotten a contract with the Center for Emergency Medicine of Western Pennsylvania to do all the interfacility non-emergency transports for the health system. Oh. And there was this magical new thing happening. They were starting a helicopter program called Stat Medevac, and uh, they needed the ambulance service to, to not only provide transport from an off-site landing zone, it was actually on top of the hill on the University of Pittsburgh campus, it was called the OC lot. I think OC stood for Old Cemetery, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> but bringing the patients down to Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh and Presbyterian University Hospital, as well as Montefiore Hospital. And they needed dispatchers. So we provided dispatching. We did those transport of the flight crews down. And so when Stat Medevac started on February 1st of 1984, I was driving the crews down and I worked uh, Sunday nights in the comm center, um, dispatching from P to 7 morning you know we had one helicopter in those days um it was it was an interesting thing i just i fell in love with the whole with everything about it you know so you were actually dispatching for stat yeah yeah and don't tell anybody this top secret but you know every (laughs) third week i was going out on a 24-hour shift on monday morning so joyce would come and she was a she my wife joyce was a medic and she would come with a blanket and a book to read, and uh, I would take a nap for a couple hours. And she would listen to the radios, and if we got a call, she would wake me up, you know, and I would get up and dispatch the call. And, Wait, uh, I, I promise not to tell anybody about that. It, <laughs> yeah, that we would not be caves accredited uh, <laughs> in those days. So, so were you dispatching for the ambulance service too, or was that that was separate? Yeah, that was separate. No, we we yep. handled just the just the helicopter work. Got you. Yeah. Well, so that's uh, got you into sort of your first dip into all this. Mm -hmm. But uh, then I know from reading your uh, your resume and stuff, you uh, moved over to the Center for Emergency Medicine at uh, University of Pittsburgh. Tell us about that and why you made that change. It was a it was a fantastic stroke of luck for me. And most of my career and my life in general has been about, you know, good fortune. Um, very, very blessed in that regard. But Dr. Ron Stewart had been recruited to, to Pitt in 1978 to start an emergency medicine training program. And, and he had this vision for a critical care transport program. And uh, if, if anybody who knows Dr. Stewart, uh, he was one of those guys that worked 23 hours a day. And so the dispatch center for Stat Medevac was in the offices of the Center for Emergency Medicine. Oh. And he worked in the comm center. Dr. Stewart would wander through at 10 o'clock at night on Sunday, and he would be working at the old IBM display writer. That's, you know, that was the word processing system at the time. Yeah. Writing research grants and those sorts of things. And we we got to know each other, and uh, and they had a position open. Uh, it was the Office of Life Support Programs. And uh, it was doing all the ACLS, ATLS, you know, the trauma training uh, uh, he had a vision also, um, back in those days, Mickey Eisenberg was out in Seattle with Seattle fire, and they had a huge program to do, uh, general public CPR to reduce, uh, the impact of, you know, witness cardiac arrest. 
And so we, we did a big public training program in Pittsburgh in concert with the hospitals. So it was a great opportunity. And, and uh, it was from an educational standpoint, I learned so much. So Dr. Stewart sort of cornered me one day and said, hey, we, we have this opening. You might be interested in this. And, uh, you know, it was, it was an amazing experience uh, to be able to, to be able to go through that with him. And uh, Dr. Paul Paris, I mean, there, there are so many people who came out of the program who are leaders around the country in emergency medicine. Yeah, it's great. That, that, that sounds wonderful. My only question is, did he have to wake you up on Sunday night at 10 o'clock? To... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I will, I'll tell you another funny story. So I'm interviewing for the job and they were running a research study and, and they were given um, patients uh, sublingual nitro tablets. And I, and I can't remember the genesis of the study, but Rich Kaplan, who's now an emergency physician, was the director of research. And so I'm laying on a couch they, they, and they got all the medics around the area to volunteer to, to be a part of the study. So I'm laying on the couch. They're giving me sublingual nitros every 10 minutes, I think. I had a whopping headache, as you might imagine, <laughs> how that works. And Paul Paris is interviewing me for the job at the Office of Life Support Programs. He's asking me interview questions. Uh, so yeah, those were the days. <laughs> well, it's a great opportunity. But then you you actually stayed at UPMC for what, 13 years or so? What, what other positions did you have? I did. You know, in those days, in 85, they just, the state of Pennsylvania had just formed an independent sort of third-party agency called the Pennsylvania Trauma Systems Foundation, and they were doing accreditation. And so um, Presbyterian University Hospital, which was the primary teaching hospital at the University of Pittsburgh, um, there was a fellow there by, name, by the name of Andy Peitzman, was starting up the trauma program. And, um, and again, <laughs> Excuse me. stroke of luck. Um, they were looking for someone to be the administrator. They had a nurse coordinator. And of course, Dr. Peitzman was the medical director. And um, working with the, the folks at the Center for Emergency Medicine, I got exposed to him and his team. And so they, they recruited me to come over there. And again, another blessing. I mean, I learned a ton. So I went over in 85. We went through the accreditation process, which was a learning experience in and of itself. I had never done that before professionally. And you know, I was in my early 20s and, uh, uh, you know, went over there to manage the trauma program. And one of the issues was in those days, the reputation of the university was not great. You know, you had residents in the emergency department. They weren't necessarily great to the medics. And so at that point in time, Presby's Trauma Center was the third busiest in the city, not in the state, but in the city. Uh, there were two other bigger trauma centers because we had really done a lousy job of, you know, making the, the medics feel welcome. So they would, they would just not come. They would go to other, other two of the other trauma centers over us. So part of it was public relations, trying to mend the fences with the MS folks. And from there, I just, I got, I had great mentors and leadership. I got a chance to do many other things. I, I managed uh, uh, the trauma center for a while. Eventually I had responsibility for all the emergency and trauma services. We had three different uh, emergency departments on that campus. We merged them into one. I eventually inherited the same day surgery program, same deal. We had three different same day surgery units. We merged them up. I had the GI lab. I had home care, knew nothing about home care, you know, uh, in those days. So I didn't learn the home care trades. I had uh, the digestive disorder center, physical therapy, occupational therapy. Wow. I, wow. I asked my boss one day, I said, you know, I'm the emergency medicine guy. I don't know. She said, that's how you're going to grow. You're going to learn more. And she was joking about it. But in reality, uh, it caused me to learn uh, quite a bit about healthcare and, and 
and you know how to manage lots of people. I mean, several hundred people on the staff and uh, in my group. And then eventually, um, we uh, formed an emergency physician practice. You know, the academic emergency physicians did not necessarily want to work forty clinical hours a week. They were teaching and doing research. Right. But in those days, hospital affiliations were just starting. This was in the mid '90s, and uh, every hospital you went and talk to and said, Hey, we'd love to have a relationship with you, you know, as the university, what can we do for you? Almost everybody said, well, we can't staff our emergency department. We can't get board certified emergency physicians. And of course the leadership of the university of Pittsburgh medical center said, no problem. We can help you with that. But they, there was really no mechanism to do that. So we started a, a, a separate emergency physician practice where we hired emergency physicians who did want to work primarily clinically and, and um, it was called Emergency Resource Management. I founded it and, uh, and was the first wow. chief operating officer there. And, and eventually, oh. I mean, still alive today, I think it staffs 15 or 20 emergency departments. They do urgent care centers now and everything. But, you know, that was in the, in the mid-90s. And yeah, that's, that's early on. You were sort of followed emergency medicine through really the, the growth, beginnings and growth stages of that, too. So, and there was a, uh, so I, there was a residency program there then. Yes, right. there was. Yeah. yeah. Still, still today. Um, and, uh, oh gosh, I think in those days it might've been, uh, I think it was 18 residents. I think it was six per year. I think now it might be 30 or 40 in yeah. the program. Was the residency program going before you, uh, came over or were you part of starting that? No, it started in 1981. Actually. Wow. So the center was formed in 78. <clears throat> the residency was in 81. Stat started in 84. Four. And oddly enough, the, the um, emergency medicine did not get full department status within the University of Pittsburgh until actually much later than that. The residency yeah. started when there weren't yet emergency medicine attendings um, in the ED. The residents actually worked with the internists and um, there were there were surgery attendings there as well. Yeah, that's that's very typical having uh been on the ground helping start the residency program at duke i went through the same type of mm -hmm. thing and then getting board certified physicians um big deal so um so um you uh i know you currently served on some uh boards uh hospital boards tell us about that and how you how you that came about. Yeah, I do. I, uh, so, you know, my, our home in West Mifflin, which is, you know, we picked the spot halfway between where I grew up and where my wife grew up when we got, when we got married. And so, uh, there was a hospital there, Jefferson regional medical center, you know, a couple of miles from my house. And that's where, um, that's where I got the, the lion's share of my medical control. I started out at the Keysport hospital as a medic getting control from there, but eventually worked, uh, in, in the West Mifflin area. And so I had medical control from the hospital. And so I've been around it for a long time while I was working at UPMC. And um, uh, eventually uh, a colleague uh, invited me to join the board there. And uh, so I did, it was actually in 2002. Uh, it's hard to believe it's wow. been 20 years. And so I, I did that at Jefferson for a few years uh, and served on some committees and eventually became the vice chairman and became the chairman uh, and I am today. I'm just about finishing up my uh, wow. my term there. And during a during about five or six years ago, there was some consolidation going on in the Western Pennsylvania healthcare marketplace. And Highmark, which is the local Blue Cross affiliate, 
was trying to create a provider network. And so they bought Jefferson Hospital. Uh, it was the first acquisition to form what's now called the Allegheny Health Network. And so, um, you know, we sold the hospital. We got money that we put into a community foundation. So I'm on the foundation board which has you know, been a fantastic experience working with local social service agencies and providing health and wellness support. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. it's, it's amazing how much yeah. uh, you know, we've been able to accomplish as a group um, with, with the cash that we got. And then, um, so Highmark bought several other hospitals, including those hospitals that formed the West Penn Allegheny Health System. So Allegheny General Hospital, West Penn Hospital, Forbes Regional, and, um, and during that time when those acquisitions were going, they were trying to create some cross-fertilization in boards. So I ended up on the West Penn Allegheny Board of Directors as well. Um, so that there, when we have lots of common, each of the hospital boards has people from the other parts of the system, as well as from Highmark uh, itself. So it's been an interesting, to be a part of an integrated delivery and financing system has been an interesting endeavor for sure. Because was um, Allegheny's a competitor with UMPC, right? So were you, you were doing both? You were at, you were on Yeah, the actually, um, uh, I had, by the time uh, I started on the, on the Allegheny Health Network side, I was, I was gone from UPMC. I was, during those days, I was, that's when I left and I went to CJ Systems. So, oh, okay. Um, yeah, so yeah, I was, yeah. but it's interesting because I did grow up on both sides and it's amazing the number of leaders uh, you know, John Paul, who was the chief operating officer at UPMC for many years, um, left there and he came back and actually was the president of Allegheny Health Network during the early part of the formation of the network. So and, and there's tons of people, tons of senior executives and, and vice president level folks who worked on both sides. Of course, a ton of frontline people too, medical staff, nurses. Um, you know, my wife was 34 years at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. She went back got her nurse practitioner license and um, she took a job at Allegheny Health Network actually after that working for one of the primary care practices so uh, and again ton of people on both sides you know Pittsburgh yeah. it's a small town so. well it's that's great experience too I, that, that's uh, helpful I didn't realize that's how Allegheny started mm -hmm. um, so that's very interesting so let's get into the air medical side then so you had some early uh, start with stat medevac what um how did you get more involved uh, with them? Yeah, another interesting turn of fate. So here I am, you know, I'm on the Stat Medivac Board of Directors, and we had done in 86, we did some expansion. We added a second helicopter. And, and in those days, remote basing wasn't as common as it is today. Right. And, and so we had added a helicopter east of Pittsburgh, Westmoreland County. It's kind of a joint venture with the local ambulance service and um, uh, one of the hospitals out there. And I'm at a local trade show, a Pennsylvania trade show uh, one day, and this fellow from Allegheny General Hospital from the LifeLight program, which was the precursor. I mean, LifeLight started in 1978, been around for a long time before Stat joined. This guy corners me and he's reading me the riot act about this remote basing thing we're doing and we don't know what we're doing and we're going to, you know, we're going to be unsafe and all these things. Yeah. And um, uh, so I, you know, I didn't, you know, I sort of, was trying to be polite and, and, and try and avoid a conflict. So I had never met the guy, heard his name. And about six months later, my boss uh, walked in and said, my office and said, we're reorganizing. We got a new guy who's uh, coming over from Allegheny General Hospital. His name is Ford Kyes, and he's going to be your boss. <laughs> I just remember going home and saying to my wife, I got to find another job. I'm never going to get 
this is not going to work out. And uh, of course, Ford, his mom, uh, Joan, who, who's spoken, you know, she's spoken at the AMTC and yeah. was a psychiatric nurse, tremendous speaker. Um, she headed up nursing at Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic, which was on the, on the UPMC side. And, um, uh, and so they needed somebody and Ford's name came up and he got recruited to come over. So when Ford came on board, um, he said, uh, look, we got to get you involved in the professional association. He had been president of the National Flight Nurses Association, which is the pre precursor to asthma. And, um, and so he said, we got to get you involved. So he, I, he took me to the air medical transport conference and I ended up on fixed wing committee because we had a fixed wing aircraft at, um, at Staten Medivac. We had several actually in those days. And, uh, so I, and Rod Crane, who, who, you know, you know, yes, I'm in, sure. I'm in a long time. Rod was the chairman of the fixed wing committee in those days. He was running lifelink three. Yes. They're in Minneapolis. And right. so I served on fixed wing committee for a while. And then Ford got elected as the president of Ames. Uh, and, and so he asked me to, um, take over and chair the finance and reimbursement committee, uh, while he was, while he was there as the, uh, as the president of Ames, so I got exposed to that. And and I don't know if you remember this. Uh, back in those days, we had had a, a giant safety congress. Ames had sponsored yes. a giant safety congress uh, because of all the issues with safety in, in right. the industry. Mid, mid eighties were a tough time. Yeah, yep. exactly. And um, and so after the dust settled a little bit after the safety congress, uh, the, the Ames board got this idea to have an air medical reimbursement congress because. We, we clearly had some lack of knowledge. We needed to educate ourselves and our membership um, of, about the nuances associated with reimbursement. And so uh, as the chairman of the Finance Reimbursement Committee, I actually set up the Congress. We, we held it here in Pittsburgh, actually. And um, uh, so that was a tremendous opportunity and experience. And, uh, and then, you know, stayed on for a while and, and did that and, um, and continued to work. So we, we stay, we're friends today, Ford and Barb Kais. And and their daughters, I've known them for a long time. And you know, he's he went, he went to Florida, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He yeah. went to uh, St. Joseph's health system in Florida right. for a while and they lived through a bunch of mergers and consolidation and, and system development down there. And uh, yeah. So one of those, again, those strokes of luck, you know, here's, I thought for sure I was going to be looking <laughs> for a job. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think I, that's when I was first getting involved with, things you know at from fairfax hospital and going mm -hmm. to ames and i remember ford being the president and got to know him and then i remember he left and went to went to florida so um so uh you served on that board but then um was it corporate jets that had the contract the AR operator contract. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. CJ Systems, as it as it eventually became, and the interesting thing about that was uh, when they were trying to start Stat Medivac in 1984, the only relationship on the aviation side, the only knowledge anybody at Presbyterian University Hospital had was they had this relationship because of the organ pro procurement program. Tom Starzl had arrived oh. at the University of Pittsburgh. He was, you know prolific transplant surgeon, you know, liver transplants, multivisceral transplants, and um, the, the local organ procurement outfit grew by leaps and bounds. And in those days, um, you know, it was kind of a more of a national list. So they were bringing organs from all over the country. They had, we had the sickest of the sick when it came to transplant patients. This is, you know, in the 80s. And, um, and so anyway, 
CJ had been providing fixed wing support for uh, the local transplant organization. So when they, they were looking for the helicopter, um, they called their friends at the aviation company. And in those days, CJ didn't have a single helicopter. It was all charter and doing, you know, organ procurement work, which is much like charter in many respects. I mean, most of the teams don't like the stretcher in the, in the aircraft they want yes. to set up so they right. can, you know, be comfortable after operating all night. So, um, you know, CJ went out and bought a, a BO-105 helicopter uh, and brought in some people, including uh, Larry Petropalo, who had been working, selling helicopters, actually, for Eurocopter, which is now Airbus, as you know, and uh, recruited Larry to come in and run the helicopter operation for CJ. So they got in, in with both feet in 1984. And in the late, in the late 90s, you know, um, the industry was changing quite a bit. The operators were getting pressured around the finances. Most hospital-based programs realized they were not breaking even and they didn't want to subsidize anymore as the financial pressures came in healthcare. Interesting how those things cycle back is here we are again today talking about, you know, reductions in reimbursement and yes. challenges economically. And, yeah. uh, and so they, um, some of the operators had started to do what people now call community-based operations where they would, um, if the hospital couldn't afford to be in the business anymore, but they had assets, you know, they, there were helicopters that were getting turned back into these operators. And so a number of those leaders, one of which was Russ Spray at Rocky Mountain Helicopters, those folks decided to, uh, to do community-based operations. So CJ was trying to figure that out. And, you know, we were, of course, you know, we were a large customer. By that time, Stat Medivac had grown quite a bit. And so uh, Larry came to me and said, hey, can we have to figure this thing out? Can you help us figure out how we do this? Because uh, they had been purely a traditional air operator relationship, you know, monthly fixed fee for pilots and mechanics and aircraft. And an hourly rate never had, you know, there were no clinical people who were employed there. Right. Um, and uh, so I said, sure. So, you know, spent some time with them, sort of a free consulting project to help them figure out how to get into the business. And uh, Larry went and presented that to the board at CJ. And, and uh, I called him up a couple of weeks later and said, hey, how did it go? He said, oh, it went fantastic. When can you start? <laughs> <laughs> I said, wait a minute, I have a job. Thank you very much. I, you know, I was just running the emergency physician practice in those days. Yeah. And, uh, this was in 97, you know. And he said, no, we really, we, we need somebody to run this outfit. Um, you may remember David Frank, who yes. had been, he ran Stat Medivac from the beginning, he and Karen Klein. Uh, David had been recruited over to CJ and, and was running their sort of, their traditional contracting and all that sort of thing. And he, he had more than a full-time job, you know, in those days. And uh, anyway, uh, I had an opportunity, so I decided to take that um, in a roundabout way. There were some interesting twists there as well. But uh, I, so I started in January of 98 at CJ. Yeah, I didn't, uh, you know, I always learn new things. I didn't realize. So Stat Medivac was really the first helicopter program for CJ. They, they, they went on to a number of contracts. I mean, they had the, the Duke contract. When I was there. Yes. Yeah. And they made a couple of acquisitions. Um, in 1989, they bought a company called U.S. Jets out of oh. bankruptcy. Yeah. And U.S. Jets had a number of flagship clients, uh, MedStar in Washington, D.C., PennStar in Philadelphia. Um, and so, um, and uh, Shans Jacksonville, which is now part of the, uh, it was it was actually University Medical Center in Jacksonville in those days. The Trauma One program was part of the U.S. Jets book of business, and uh, which is now Shans 
Shands Health System or Shands Jacksonville. So yeah, bought US Jet in 89, added a bunch of helicopters, added a bunch of pilots, um, you know, contracts. And then um, Indianapolis Heliport, which was based in the Midwest um, in, uh, in the mid nineties, um, they bought Indianapolis Heliport and, and it had uh, programs like uh, Miami Valley Hospital in Dayton, um, St. Vincent's Hospital in Toledo, Ohio. Oh, right, um, right. The program, yeah. yeah, the program there at um, Samaritan in Fort Wayne. And they were all Dauphine operators. So yes. they went from having a bunch of Eurocopter products, old BKs, you know, and some BO-105s actually still in the fleet, to having, I think, six or seven uh, 365s of various, you know, we had we had N models, N1s, and N2s back in those days. And um, in fact, I can remember... Uh, we had so many Dolphins that when they came out with the new, um, and I, I'm drawing a blank on which one it was, the new Eurocopter aircraft, was the, it was like the Dolphin on steroids. Wayne Heisinga, who was the owner of the Miami Dolphins, had one of them, and they were having trouble with the struts on the landing gear. And Eurocopter sent the aircraft to us to work on because we operate, you know, we operated more Dolphins than anybody other than the Coast Guard, you know. At least on the so on the civilian side. So yeah, the the and it had the Miami Dolphins logo on it and all that stuff. Um, in those days, we did. I'll tell you a funny story too. We that thing went back to Miami with three or four terrible towels stuffed in the seats. And <laughs> <laughs> that did not go over too well with our friends from Eurocopter. That's funny. Uh, that's but, funny. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, um... We used, uh, you know, as at West Michigan Air Care, we had our own Part 135 that had the Dolphins and and used mm-hmm. CJ for some of the uh, more extensive maintenance and stuff. So, yeah, um, how times have changed. Yeah, yeah. In fact, did I see an article? It was like the last one was just produced or purchased uh, as far as the Dolphins. I think they've stopped that. Um, I think during when it, Again, reading your thing, you you went back and got a uh, a master's degree in public management. Um, was when was that? Was that during this same time period? And and why did you do that? Yeah, I was uh, I was at um, I was still at UPMC in those days, and uh, yeah, I was nineteen. I, I finished up the program in nineteen ninety two. You know, I kind of I liked uh, I liked administration, I liked operations, and I wanted to continue to do it for a while. And so, uh, you know, in our world, you know, academic medical center, you had to, you had to really have an advanced degree to go to that next level. Um, and so, uh, and it's interesting, there were, you know, the University of Pittsburgh itself had a school, graduate school of public health, tremendous. And, yes. And they had an MHA program. And the challenge was um, you had to do a nine month residency. So you had to quit your job. Nine months. A, a oh. lot of the people that I worked for, uh, my immediate boss, Shelly Gabar, and Tony Sanzo, who was the chief operating officer in those days, actually went on to run the West Penn Allegheny Health System as well here in Pittsburgh. Those guys had all been graduates of the program. They had to quit work and do a nine-month residency. At res- I mean, it was a paid residency, but, you know. And at that time, you know, we, we had had our first child. Joyce was working as a nurse. Um, she was in school getting a master's in nursing. And, uh, and so I had an opportunity to do it. And, and the program at CMU, which is where I went, um, you had to be in management for five years. It was designed for people who were practicing leaders already. It wasn't got, got, yeah. right out of undergrad school. And there was no residency requirement. 
um, you know, so it was a you could it was a part time. I mean, you could still be working and do the program. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. excellent. Yeah, yeah. Night, night classes. So I did a couple nights a week. Um, you know, and uh, we did homework holding babies and all that sort of thing. I wouldn't advise that. <laughs> my kids don't don't try that. You know, <laughs> get your schooling done before you have kids if you can. Yeah. Well, no, that's great though. How do how do you think that degree uh, helped you in your career? Uh, you know, it was amazing because as a, as a young person, you know, and I was in my early twenties when I went to work in the hospital, they handed me this piece of paper called a budget variance report. You know, I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. I said, variance report, what's this? And I had to do, I had to work with it every month and produce a, a roll-up report as to the reasons for all the explanations for all the variances in my cost centers and things. So it's getting that formal, formal sort of thought process. But also, um, I found it, and and we talked about this, you know, we're going to talk about MTLI a little bit as well, but I find this, this is one of the beautiful things about MTLI is I was in the classroom with people who were, who were running operations all over Western PA at different health systems and hospitals. And so I learned as much on the breaks and listening to the questions that people ask. I mean, I was a very green administrator in those days. And I learned a ton from the people around me that were in the program as well. And the faculty, the other thing they did was all the faculty, they were all practicing um, um, healthcare leaders. So the person who taught financial management 101 and 102 was Craig Trout. He was the CFO at a big community hospital um, outside of Pittsburgh, Beaver County, actually, almost in, mm-hmm. in your neck of the woods where you were right. raised. Right. He was the CFO of Beaver Medical Center. Tremendously experienced guy. So I learned a ton from people who were doing it every day. So now, now I know where you get your financial experience now. Too. <laughs> I'm learning a lot here. Ed. This is great. So um, there was a, you were there at Corporate Jets when uh, Air Methods made the purchase and there was a transition. What, tell us about that. Yeah, we, um, you know, the, the company was on Corporate Jets had private ownership and um, Fred Shawless and Mr. Shawless made you know, most of his money in the coal industry. And so he never really took any money out of, out of uh, CJ. We were able to plow all those resources back into new aircraft and training and equipment and things. But, you know, he got, he got to a point where, um, you know, he was starting to wind down his business career and, and his business holding. So he was looking for, um, to find a place to, uh, for CJ to be able to continue, but without him, uh, you know, as the primary owner. And we had grown quite a bit in those years. I think we, uh, we doubled or tripled in size during the 11 years that I was there. It was crazy, crazy kind of growth. And the, the industry was like that as well. I think, yes. you know, lots of new programs and lots of people, um, uh, you know, pushing the limits of the business, meaning doing creative things. I mean, again, remote basing was not something that was done in the 80s, 70s and 80s, but boy, in the 90s, it really became something. So, yeah, so we uh, we had an opportunity to... Uh, uh, Mr. Shawless had an opportunity to sell CJ. And so um, the company was sold. Uh, a couple of us, as a condition of the sale, had to stay on for 12 months to help with the transition, introduce the Air Methods folks to the customers and those sorts of things. So um, I did that. So I worked at Air Methods for a year as a regional VP. I had the uh, the Northeastern United States during that time. Was there an opportunity to stay on with Air Methods or had, did you want to move on? No, there was, uh, you know, the folks in our methods in those days were, 
were great to me. Um, and, uh, and actually some of my colleagues, uh, I had a, a colleague, Rob Hamilton, who actually sure. had been the, the hospital-based Northeast vice president. And he grew up in Virginia, you know, right. was involved in the programs there. And, and Rob was good enough to, to move his family, actually. Uh, they moved out to Denver and he took over the Midwest region so that I could stay in Pittsburgh and, and be around my family and continue to work um, as a part of our method. So I was very blessed in that regard. Oh, Rob, I tell him that all the time um, that he did that. But, um, you know, I had never worked in a publicly traded environment before. It was it was a little bit unique for me. I'd worked not-for-profit ambulance services and, and healthcare hospitals. And even CJ, uh, while it was privately held and was for-profit, it operated more like a not-for-profit entity than, than not. And so I had, you know, it was a big adjustment for me. Um, and, uh, and I had a, a good friend, uh, who I'd known for a long time. We actually coached a little grade school basketball together, together, a fellow named Mike Lewis, who had founded quick med claims. And, yeah. and they actually, they did the billing for our, you know, I, I didn't mention this, but when we started CJ, my philosophy, my recommendation to Larry was to not do community-based operations, but to do hybrids or alternative delivery models where we partnered with the hospitals in the area and health systems, and in some cases, you know, fire departments um, to provide helicopter services. So we needed someone to do that, to handle the revenue cycle management work for us. And so we had hired QuickMed to do that. And, um, and so I was very familiar with the operation uh, at QuickMed and, and uh, Mike Lewis came to me one day and said, uh, he said, hey, uh, we're trying to grow the company. Why don't you come to work here? He said, um, and this is, I, I give him uh, grief for this all the time. He said, <laughs> there are no billing emergencies, he said to me, because as you know, during those years, uh, you know, uh, in air medicine in general, there were, we had our fair share of accidents and, and I had a couple when I was at CJ. Right. I had, uh, I had one that year that I was at Air Methods and those were a little taxing. I can remember, a, you know, we had an accident uh, on Mother's Day weekend and it happens to be my wife's birthday too. And I remember throwing you know, some clothes in a bag and heading to the airport to hop on a plane to go to the, this, the site. And, um, you know, I was gone for a week, uh, just yeah. gone for a week. So Michael said to me, Hey, there's no billing emergencies, you know, um, you can come to work here. And, and, uh, and of course there are billing emergencies because we're all trying <laughs> to keep our heads above water from a financial standpoint. But, um, so yeah, it's been great. And I was, I've been a quick man now for 13 years. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's great. I think I remember talking to you at AMTC when you were right in that transition, you know, and you were talking about quick med claims. Um, um, had they done, were they mainly a uh, ground ambulance uh, provider until um, staff yeah, came started, on? Or, yeah, starting ground ambulance work, you know, when the company got founded, actually did some position billing in the early days. But um, uh, when I went to CJ in 98, we had a hybrid program up in Cleveland. It was a partnership with University Hospitals of Cleveland. And that was the first, um, we were the first air medical client um, of QuickMed claims. Oh, I and see. Then they, and then they went on to do um, uh, the staff care program in Louisville. John Blumenstock hired Mike Lewis to do their work. Um, I'm trying to think of, there was a couple other places um, that were customers as well so stat oh, uh, stat hadn't used them no no stat, okay. uh, stat was in-house it was uh, okay done at the university of pittsburgh medical center originally and uh 
And then eventually um, Stat Medivac formed its own billing office and had that for a number of years. And now it's been rolled back into what they call the central billing office there. But it was an interesting story because back in those days, when the hospital was doing the billing, um, there wasn't any pressure because the way stat worked was it was a consortium. And at the end of the year, if there was a shortfall, the hospital member hospitals would kick in an amount and it was commensurate with the number of flights you got. So yep. if you, if you received 40% of the flights that year, that stat medevac flew, um, then you were responsible for 40% of the shortfall. And it was the same with capital acquisitions. The hospitals had to fund new aircraft and, all those things, you know, we was a combination of those early days when I was on the stat medevac side of the ledger, you know, we leased some aircraft through CJ and we, and we bought some, you know, so it was a little bit of both. And of course now, you know, stat owns, I think all of its aircraft, most, most programs, most larger programs, you realize the economics are such that it makes sense to own. Yeah. And that's good. You went through that as well. Right. Good economics and owning aircraft. Uh, you know, at life length, they were leased until, I came up and we said, we need to purchase these. This makes so much sense uh, right. in the long run. Um, so um, let's go into, um, you know, cause you, you, you touched upon how reimbursements changed and, you know, hospitals when they first got into this, a lot of times it was you know, included under the Medicare stuff and sort of cost mm -hmm. reporting. And, uh, you know, people didn't pay that much attention to billing. Uh, and I, I was involved with that. I remember uh, when I went to to Duke, I mean, they were like way undercharging, you know, what I thought. And, and in those days, you, you did the, you know, your uh, your your fixed cost was your, you know, rollout fee or, and and uh, and your variable cost was, you know, the your fuel, gas, other things. Yeah, um, but swap. but you were involved. Um, you know, we're, we're going to talk. Uh, you've been very active in AIMS and ACT, but talk about let's first talk about the negotiated rulemaking because that was a big, big uh thing that happened in our industry, and you were <coughs> a, ma a major part of that. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. So, the Balanced Budget Act of 1997 called for the formation of an ambulance fee schedule, a national fee schedule. Right. And as you recall, those early years, it was very frustrating ground and air ambulances because, you know, and a lot of people don't realize this, that, you know, Medicare doesn't pay us directly. There are third parties who contract with Medicare to adjudicate the claims and make the payments and things. They're called intermediaries or carriers. Right. And so, what we found around the industry is, and it's not wasn't unique transport either. I think the physicians found this as well, is um, the way Medicare claims were paid was very different from carrier to carrier, region to region in the country. And so there was a lot of griping about that. And of course, the spend on ambulance of all types, not just air, in the you know in the '90s ballooned. You know, people have this expectation about access to care and things of that nature. So. Um, the, the legislation, you know, the BBA had a provision to create this national fee schedule. So um, there was this thing called a negotiated rulemaking that none of us were really familiar with. And it was the idea was that the federal government would get the key constituency groups in a room and have them hammer out a policy. In this case, it was the it was the fee schedule itself. And so they assembled, um, you know, the American Hospital Association, 
International Association of Firefighters, International Association of Fire Chiefs, American Ambulance Association, AIMS. Um, this, this was before ACT existed in those days. Yes. Uh, the National Association of County Governments, believe it or not, there was a fellow by the name of Ron Acock from North Carolina who um, was the representative from, from the county government folks. And uh, we got together uh, once a month for, it took darn near a year and a half um, for three days. And we, our job was to hammer out this fee schedule. Um, and, and I had uh, chaired the Ames Finance Reimbursement Committee. And, and so Denise Landis, who was the president at the time, asked me to um, represent the association. And we had, of course, we had a great team of people. Um, Kathy McDonald, who was yep. in rare and, um, you know, there were folks from all different kinds of programs, you know, Lifelight Network up in the Pacific Northwest uh, was represented. Their CEO was on the committee. And then we had uh, uh, we had some consultants and we had uh, Howard Solins, who was from Overkaler, a D.C. law firm, was helping to advise us. So we we went through the process with all the other constituency, constituency groups to try and figure out how to hammer out this fee schedule. There were some there were some type parameters. Um, the spending, there was a base year spending. It might have been 95 or 96. So whatever we hammered out could be no more than what Medicare had spent on all ambulance work in that base year. So the fee schedule had to fit into that sort of, it was a finite bucket. And the real question was, how do we divide up the bucket? Um, and we were, again, in the air medical industry, we were blessed because most of our, most of our providers Ninety um, percent, probably in those days, were hospital based, and you made reference to the hospital cost report earlier. Yeah. So in the old days, Medicare reimbursement for hospitals was based on you got an interim payment, so you took care of Aunt Minnie, gave her, you know, she got her her cardiac cath, and then um, you got an interim payment from Medicare at the time, and then at the end of the year, it was usually six or eight months or more afterwards, the hospital would submit all of its cost data, and and Medicare would do this computation and they would say, okay, well, the cost per case, the cost of a cardiac cath is X. So let's say it was $5,000. We paid you 2,500. So for all those caths you did last year, we're going to give you an extra 2,500 bucks. So there was the settle up that happened. And the beautiful part of that was air medical transport was included. So we yes. went into the Medicare archives and we had years and years of cost data that Medicare had already audited through their process. So we hired Ernst and Young, um, you know, which was a big, big accounting, big six accounting firm at the time. And we said, we want you to go through the data and um, tell us what the number is. Tell us based on all these years of Medicare cost report data, because we wanted a third party stamp of approval. And so they produced a report. And so we could walk into those meetings and say, here's the cost of air medical transport. And it's not our data. We didn't make this up. This is Medicare's data. We just got the files and made sense of them for you. And uh, of course, the ground ambulance side didn't have that, right? Because there were very few hospital-based ground ambulances. Not only that, but they were even more disadvantaged because a lot of the big municipal ambulance services, they didn't care how much they got reimbursed because most of their budget was, the revenue was derived from tax revenues. Right, right. So they looked at the third-party reimbursement as a bonus, many of them, their charges were way less than their cost because they didn't really care. Um, so all of their charge data that came through was what Medicare had. And so they were looking at charge data and trying to, uh, you know, 
decipher what what part of that was cost. So we were, you know, we were very blessed that we had that information and were able to put it together. And we, again, we had a really good team, Denise and, and others that we worked. You know, there were and, a lot of hours. And I think what was the the big issue is, you know, you had that cost data, but uh, you know, a lot of times the program directors and stuff. I mean, what was being charged by the hospitals was way less than that. Um, and getting them, because there, there was a time period where it was, was phased in, if I remember, right? And yeah, over three years. Yeah. yeah, that we had to get our charges up to, to cover the cost. And that's pretty hard in host, some hospitals because it, it's the cost, cost reporting in the hospital to know. And, you know, right. Um, to know that. And most program directors at that time, and I think probably even some today at hospital-based programs, revenue is not even on their, you know, radar. It's not right. something yeah. they manage expenses. Right. I talked to a client just the other day, about two weeks ago, who, who uh, I asked some questions about the No Surprises Act and preparation. And the response I got was the finance people handle all that. Um, they'll, they'll work with you on it. I'm just responsible for my, my expense budget. Yeah. As long as I'm managing that to the expectation, um, I'm golden. And so you're right. There's a lot of people who are involved in leadership and the operations who the revenue piece is something that they don't, they don't work with day in, day out. Well, before we get into the balanced, uh, billing and the no surprises act, um, mm -hmm. what else? Um, you remember, you've been an active member of Ames and Act. Tell us about some of the positions that you've had um, besides the negotiated rulemaking. Yeah, I think, you know, mostly just for me, it's been being a part, an active part of the association, you know, serving on committees. And, and I would encourage people in the industry, you know, if you're out there listening to the, to the podcast, if you're not engaged, uh, please take the time to do it. It's a yeah. great, first of all, there's wonderful people in this industry. And you know that if you're involved at all, and you, you and I talk, talk about that frequently, uh, that there are some great people. We have some of our best friends, you know, or people that we've, we've gotten acquainted with through the profession here. Um, but, you know, we need folks um, who are younger, who have fresh ideas to be actively involved in the associations, whether it's, you know, your professional association, if you're a communicator or a, a physician or or a critical care nurse or, or critical care paramedic, um, you know, you, you know, we need people to be involved. And so for me, I, you know, I, we, of course, we, we quick make claims are members of both ACT and, and AIMS and, and we are actively involved in both. And I've spoken at conferences, um, you know, for both and, and, you know, attend the meetings and things. I think, you know, we need more people to be involved and actively to make sure that we're, we're guiding the industry and providing the right resources. And of course, MTLI is part of that as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I know uh, we were both uh, involved with MTLI from the beginning, and then you were uh, involved uh, for, for much longer and through a transition. And we're going to, we've talked, uh, so the listeners, we're going to looking at doing a, an actual podcast on MTLI, some of the history and, you know, where it's been and where it's going. So we won't go into to all that, but, um, you uh, taught and were a regent for several years and uh, during some turbulent times too, um, had to take the reins of leadership. But uh, one, one thing that I was very impressed with what you did was the MTLI uh, Marasco, 
Maresco Family MTLI Scholarship, right? And what tell us about that? I think that was after I left, so I don't know a lot of uh, of the details on that. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, you know, look, we've as I mentioned earlier, we've been very fortunate in life, Joyce and I. We have great great family, and um, so we made the decision a couple of years ago. Uh, to create a, uh, a family charitable trust. Um, you know, there are some things that are important to us as humans yeah. and our children and their wives, you know, the boys and their wives um, are very passionate about a number of things. And so we put, we put some money aside for this family trust to give away every year. And um, so for me, um, you know, following the lead of some other tremendous folks in the industry, um, that you know have donated lots and lots of resources to the industry over the years. Uh, you know we had an opportunity to do that, so we uh, we put together a scholarship for from the family trust uh, for MTLI, uh, and so each year um, there'll be a first year and a second year student uh, that will be sort of on scholarship, if you will. So the the Medevac Foundation um, is the sort of the source of the money, or is the is the source of the process. So they have a committee and they take applications every year. And there's a number of scholarships for both undergraduate school as well as the Dr. Suzanne Weddle scholarship for graduate school. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, folks who maybe otherwise the program can't support them, maybe, you know, on their own, it's the, the financial part of it is a tall ask. We want to make sure that there's access to the to the important training that's done at MTLI for anybody who wants to go. So. Uh, you know, we were able to do that, make a commitment to do it for a number of years, 10 years to uh, make sure that there's some money there for folks who can't maybe otherwise pay, get there to go. So we're we're thrilled to do that. And the industry has been uh, great to us. And as, as I mentioned, you know, we talk about all the time, our best friends, you know, are people that we've we've come across through the industry. So, yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful legacy and congratulate you on that. That's it's really nice of your family to do that. Uh, to help MTLI, I mean, you know, we'll we'll go into more detail. But I remember when we started, I thought, well, this thing will be over in a few years because we've gotten all the program directors, and it's been very, very successful uh, program. Very. Yeah, and you probably remember. Right. Don't you remember the feeling? It was very daunting at the beginning because we were, you know, I were teaching. We were, the, we were part of the original yeah. faculty, and some of the people who were taking the program those first couple of years dwarfed us in terms of years of experience <laughs> yes in the right, was a bit right, <laughs> right yeah uh, you just yeah you you learned a lot just by teaching it was just great to to stay up on it well let's get into um the no surprises act you know which was implemented uh in january january 1st uh give us a you know brief history of this legislation why it came into being and um you know just just some background Sure. Yeah. You know, the, the issue is not a new issue. Um, so um, the, the concept of balanced billing is when um, a provider, so a physician, uh, ambulance provider, uh, a hospital is out of network with an insurance company, which means they don't they don't have a contract with the insurance company that specifies a rate. Um, the insurance company in that circumstance will typically pay that clinical person. Um, a fee, what they call a usual and customary charge. It's usually some computation that the insurance company, the health plan does. And then um, the provider, so the physician or ambulance service or air ambulance, has the opportunity then to bill the patient the difference between 
what the health plan paid them and what their full charges are. And I, when I talk to people about billing and reimbursement, I can remember teaching, you know, talking about this MTI. I said, you know, look, when you hire a plumber, they give you a price. And after the work is done, try telling the plumber, I don't think my allowable for that is not the $2,000 that, that you charge, but it's, it's 1500. See how that goes for you. But in healthcare, that happens all the time, right? We provide the service um, and someone else, and it's not even really the customer at the end of the day, or, you know, and whether you think of the patient or or the health plan as the customer, um, you know, that's up for debate as well. But, you know, health plan will make that sort of seemingly sometimes arbitrary decision. And so the idea of doing that has been happening for a long time. And, And one of the, there's a term of art called cost shifting. One of the things that spawned a lot of that balanced billing is because most providers of healthcare don't get paid enough from the big payers. And that's, if you look at the payer mix of most organizations or physician practices or whatever, you know, 50 to 60% is government payer rights. Medicare yep. covers older folks or Medicaid, uh, which covers folks, you know, who maybe can't afford healthcare otherwise. Um, and those, those two entities don't pay us our costs. We know that. And we could talk more about the, um, the, ambulance fee schedule because that while we started at the base year with cost there was an annual escalator that was the cpi minus one percent and so we've lost one percent against the cost of living and i would even argue over the course of the ambulance fee schedule all these years that it's been in place um the cost of health care has gone up way way above the consumer price index all the commitments particularly in air medical tra- safety and clinical yes, equipment right. you know so it hasn't kept up so what do we have to do in order to make ends meet we have to build commercial payers and private payers, which tends to be individuals, more than our cost, well more than our cost, to be able to make up what we lose on Medicare and Medicaid and, and even the free care that we provide, right? Which most of these organizations will do lots of transports every year that we just don't get paid for. The patient doesn't have the money. Um, and it's the right thing to do. We should provide that service, but we somehow we have to figure out how to make ends meet. So that cost shifting, and it's not typical, it's not unique to air medicine, it's physicians, hospitals, and whatever, it happens. And at some point, the commercial payers started to push back. And that's when this usual and customary, this lower payment began to happen. And uh, of course, that's evolved over time. And the real genesis of the act is not really air medical transport. And one of the big scenarios that caused the heartburn, that caused great public outcry, which got Congress involved, is, you know, and I just had this happen to me, Edward, just the other day. I, you know, I had some medical work done and my physician was in network. And I was trying to schedule a procedure and um, I had two choices early in the morning um, at a, at a surgery center, freestanding surgery center, or late in the afternoon on Friday at the hospital surgery center. And I, you know, I'm a smart guy, right? I know healthcare. I don't want to be last case of the day ever because things get out of whack. I want to go first case in the morning. So I picked the first case in the morning only to find out after the procedure was done that the, the facility was out of network. Oh, My yeah. physician was in. And so, and that's what happens. If you go to, you know, a lot of times you'll go to the local hospital emergency department because you know it's in network with your insurance, but you don't realize that the physician professional group, which is separate from the hospital or the radiology group, which is separate from the hospital or the pathology group or the anesthesia group is not in network with your insurance. And so you get this surprise bill, surprise balance bill. So that's, that's sort of what started things. And it took a couple of years. There was some fits and starts. There was a lot of really violent opinions on both sides. 
about whether or not there was, you know, balanced billing was necessary. But I think everybody agreed on one thing, and that is we have to find a way to get the patients out of the middle because people were losing their homes and yeah, absolutely. financial ruin on these things. And, and not because they were being improper stewards of healthcare resources or trying to get things. It was just they didn't know. And had they known, they might have made a different decision particularly in some of those elective kinds of things. Um, so anyway, uh, there was a couple of years of back and forth. And finally, at the very end of the Trump administration in December, the No Surprises Act finally came together and got enough consensus to be passed. So, um, so that was, you know, that was the fall of, of 2000. And the interesting thing about the No Surprises Act is, you know, it had to be implemented by January 1 of 22, and uh, you've been around a long time and we've done some of this, some of the policy work together during your time around the industry as well. I mean, you can never get effective regulations and, and a sweeping policy change like this done in 12 or 13 months. It is impossible to do. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's where we were. The key provisions of the No Surprises Act are no patients get unexpected balance bills. So we're no longer allowed to balance bill patients. For hospitals and physicians, it's in an emergency setting. Um, for air medical transport, it's almost all we do, right, is emergency setting stuff. So other than maybe some elective fixed wing work that we do. So we're not a lot of balanced bill patients anymore. Um, but when you take away that ability for the providers and suppliers of services to get to recover that extra money, because again, that gap still exists. You had to put another tool in place to be able to resolve disputes between the health plans and the providers. And so that is what um, the term of art for that now is an independent dispute resolution process or IDR. And so what happens now as a result of the act is um, we send the bill, the health plan is gonna pay that number that they think is a fair number. The, the air medical provider can accept that number if they think it's good. If they don't think it's good, they can begin what's called an open negotiation process. We've been doing negotiations around these rates for years. It's nothing new. You know, you know, from the time. Being network. Yeah. 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 You, know, you, you get a rate, you get a payment. Um, when you're out of network with a provider, you get a, you get a payment. If you don't like it, you're, you're negotiating back and forth to come up with a, a rate. And then, of course, you know, if you didn't get a good enough rate, then you would build a patient to balance. Well, now we can't do that. So that open negotiation process is still in place. It's uh, we've got 30 business days to do it, but it's very formal. We actually have to notify the insurance, the health plan of our intent to formally negotiate. We have that 30 day window at the end of that window. If we haven't come up with a rate that's acceptable to us and to the health plan, then it goes to an independent third party, this independent dispute resolution process. Um, and so there are there are entities that have applied to the federal government to serve as arbitrators. Um, and uh, they're being stood up now um, to be able to handle the process. And then uh, we will present our case and what we think our number is, that's a fair payment. The health plan will present their case and their, what they believe to be a fair payment to the arbiter. And they will uh, review the information and um, at some point make a decision of which is the fair number. It's interesting uh, for those of you who are sports fans, if you follow baseball at all, and I don't, I can't, I don't know exactly where this became sort of the piece of the legislation, but 
The arbitration is patterned after baseball arbitration. So the arbiters have no ability, except in one or two very limited circumstances, to provide a third option. We, the, the provider of air medical transport, are going to send a number in, and the health plan is going to send a number, and the arbiter has to pick one or the other. So and that's how baseball arbitration works. You can't come up with a compromise. The player puts a number in, the organization puts a number in, and then and then why, the why is that? Why do you think I always thought that's what arbitration was? Is it you? Yeah, tried... I don't know. Uh, it's it's interesting. I don't know really. I didn't know that the legislation oh. was formed. I don't know who pushed for that particular style of arbitration, but that's what we ended up with. So uh, it makes it a bit of an art because if you if you put a number in that's that's too high, um, you might you you might cause the arbiter who otherwise would think you know, your, your number was that you got paid was not adequate, but if you put a number in that's too high, you're going to force the arbiter to side with the health plan. So, you know, just a quick example, right? So you, a $40,000 air medical bill, maybe the usual and customary charge that the health plan pays is $20,000. You look at it and you say, well, well, geez, I, I can't take anything less than $30,000 for this trip. So you're going to put 30 in. And of course the health plan is probably going to pick their number, which they paid you initially, which is 20. And then the arbiter has to pick one of those numbers. So how do they do that? Well, this is where the rub comes in. Um, the law also had, um, and this is, again, not unique to air medicine. And it's not unique even to this legislation. Uh, there's a term of art, a number called a qualifying payment amount, um, which is supposed to be sort of the prevailing uh, charge or payment for a particular type of service. So the legislation called for uh, the use of, the development of, uh, computation of, and the use of the qualified payment amount as a tool to help um, uh, handle these disputes. Unfortunately, again, this is part of this condensed regulatory process, when um, the legislation was, was authored and then in the translation by the agencies that are implementing it, um, the qualified payment amount got pinned directly to the median in-network rate. So what does that mean, median in-network rate? So health plans have contracts with some providers, physicians, hospitals, air medical transport programs. So the computation of the QPA for, let's say, Blue Cross in Pennsylvania. Blue Cross is going to take that number of what they pay for all of their contracts. They may have five in-network air medical transport providers, and they may have five that, are, that service their population in Pennsylvania that are not in-network. So for the in-network providers, they take those five payments. So we, you know, and it's based on, you know, base rate and loaded mile rate, which is how we bill for air medical transport. And they say, you know, the lowest rate is, you know, $20,000 base rate, the next is 21, the next is 22, the next is 23, so on and so forth. And so they have to pick the middle one and then they do the same for the mileage payment rate. And that's the median in-network rate, the middle in-network rate that they pay for, for the contracts that they have. And that becomes the qualifying payment amount. So why is that number important? Well, that's probably a benchmark that the health plans are gonna to use to pay us because on the other side, if we can't come to agreement, the arbiters originally in the legislation were given five or six factors, including right. this by payment amount yeah. to consider in arbitration. When the agencies, and by the way, there are three agencies that have responsibility for 
um, creating and, and enforcing the regulations, health and human services, um, treasury, and gosh, the third one just went on in my head, labor. So those three agencies, the tri-agencies have responsibility for administering the NSA. So when the three agencies got together, they sort of went off a little bit on their own and, and they, they actually gave, provided direction for the arbiters, the IDREs or IDR entities, to use the qualified payment amount as the primary determinant. In fact, it's the initial um, determinant for arbitration. In order to deviate from that number, the QPA, others have to prove, which means us primarily, right, the provider side, we have to prove that there's some reason why that's not a fair rate. So the other items mentioned in the legislation, which were minimized in the regulation, are things like um, special equipment on the aircraft, quality of the crew personnel, um, uh, quality type of the care provider. Type unique, of aircraft. Yeah. Right. Unique things that the patient needs. And you think about it, you, you know, from running programs, you know, two adult cardiac patients that get flown in a facility are not all the same. So you can have one where that patient's rock solid, stable. They have some drips going from the outlying hospital. The crews are doing vital signs. They may not even adjust the medication dose during the transport. You know, everything is basically okay. They just need to get from point A to point B. We need to minimize their out of hospital time. And then you have another adult cardiac patient that maybe is on a balloon pump that you use several very expensive medications to maintain their cardiac status during the transport. Um, you may take a specialty team, you know, think about neonates and pediatric cases. Um, and so those two trips, they look the same on paper. They may have the exact same pickup point, drop-off point, the exact same load of miles. You may even use the same aircraft, which you probably do, to do that trip. But the cost and the level of intensity is very different. So the burden of proof is going to be on us, the providers, to say, hey, that median in-network rate is not enough for this transport. It may not even be enough for that rock-stable patient, depending on the computation. Um, so those are the rub points that sort of have come up since the regulations were formed. Why, why did, was it, you think just because it was implemented so quickly that they only used that and, and deviated from the legislation? And that's what the lawsuits are all about right now, exactly. too, is that you can't just use that one factor because it's, it's uh, uh, very, dis, uh, it's a disadvantage for the, the provider. Right. By just yeah. using that. Exactly. And I, and I think time was probably part of it. You think about, you know, going back to the negotiated rulemaking process, just to develop the fee schedule, we met once a month for 18 months, three days at a time. And yeah. there was a lot of back and forth and discussion and challenges. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a whole discussion around, you know, we provide ALS level transport. We have paramedics on every trip. We have ALS equipment. We should get paid all ALS. Of course, CMS said, we're not opening up that can of worms. We can't pay you. That everyone would go out and hire paramedics and expect higher reimbursement, even when a patient was was a BLS patient. So that's how ALS one and ALS two got derived. None of that dialogue took place in the NSA. There was no opportunity for there to be two way give and take among the constituent parties around this issue. Um, so you know from again from being around, um, there are several ways that regulations get published. An, an NPRM or notice of proposed rulemaking is the more common way. And that's, that's an, literally, it's an invitation to the community, to all the constituent groups to, to comment on 
what's been proposed by the agencies and, and then even be a part of the process to help try and not correct the language, but but adapt the language so that it's it's serves the purpose it's supposed to serve and that it's and it's reasonable and all those sorts of things. The other mechanism that agencies use to develop rules is called um, an interim final rule or IFR, not to be right. confused instrument flight rules in our world, which is right. very confusing for a lot yes. of <laughs> um, But that interim final rule is basically it's the agency saying to the constituency groups, this is it. You know, feel free to comment if you want, but this is this is the language we're going with. We don't have time to take a year, year and a half to do that. So um, most of the No Surprises Act regulations were promulgated through an IFR, an interim final rule, which means there was really little uh, opportunity for input. Now, all, all the major constituents have weighed in, obviously, you know, even uninvited. So, uh, you know, ACT has sent letters to the agencies. Ames has sent letters. Of course, the American Hospital Association, American Medical Association, right. all the big industry groups have weighed in. Through communication, there have been a series of meetings. The tri-agencies actually did have some, um, they had some some actually public sort of communication. And, and this was all before January 1st. Yes. Yeah, this yeah. is, most of this happened last year. Although, uh, you know, those IFRs that came out, you know, there were none that came out before summer. Again, you know, less than, you know, six months before the thing went live. So there was not a lot, a lot of opportunity to, to have dialogue and make adjustments. Um, and so um, there was lots of there were lots of issues raised by the professional associations and even you know trade associations on the other side, people representing consumers and and patients and you know AARP. I mean, there's you know there's been lots of feedback throughout the formation of the legislation, but there wasn't really an opportunity with the regulations. So the real rub points for most people on the healthcare side are the fact that these these QPAs are developed in a black box or computed in a black box by the health plans. We don't have all that data. We, yeah. I, in fact, yeah. if you, and you did this, cause you know, when you were running programs, your contract terms, when you signed a contract with Blue Cross of Michigan, they were confidential. You weren't permitted to share those with any That's other right. program. Yeah. So that information is not widely out there. The only entity that has the contract rates for everybody that's got an in-network contract in a certain given jurisdiction for air medical or, emergency care or whatever else are the health plans. So they're in the position of having all the data points. They're in the position of computing this QPA and paying us accordingly. And we have really no ability to, no visibility into that to challenge it. And the other thing it does, it gives them a tremendous advantage in the IDR process, because especially now that the QPA has been made the primary source, because now they know what the arbiter is going to see. We don't know that number. We don't know what the, the QPA is necessarily. Uh, we presume it's something around where they paid us, but it may not be. So we're having to make a decision on what number to submit, what, what offer to make. Wow. Legislation yeah. Without having it, the health plans know it. They know the numbers. So there are some issues with that. The median in-network rate is already artificially low. For example, um, you know, there are some things that were um, through negotiations in the legislation itself that were excluded. So single case rates. So, you know, I'm born and raised in Western Pennsylvania. I have Highmark Blue Cross as my insurance. If I'm vacationing in Florida and I have a heart attack and I need to be flown, um, I'm going to be out of network. 
and the air medical provider in Florida, let's say it's Aramed at Tampa General Hospital, they're going to negotiate a single case rate with Highmark and say, hey, we've transported at Marasco. You're charging me 40 grand. That's our usual and customary is 20 grand. You know, and then there's negotiation back and forth. And we say, okay, we're going to negotiate an individual rate on this trip. We're going to pay you 27,000 on this trip, one time only for you, Highmark. That's it. Well, all those individual negotiations, those individual case rates were excluded. So it's only longstanding sort of oh. large volume. Oh. So the numbers are artificially low, right? Because yeah. if you're Aramed, you know, if you're in an area that has lots of visitors, you have a lot of these single case rates that you use because you've got transient population. Um, but the only number that can be used to compute the in-network rate is, you know, the, the, the local patients um, that are with that particular health plan. So the numbers are already a little bit depressed over what our overall commercial payment experience is. Um, it doesn't take into account um, when we have balanced bill patients, we've gotten paid some of that money. Oftentimes not. Oftentimes patients can't afford to pay much on the balance. But what we collect on a cash per transport basis from commercial payers in a not a network situation is not the median network rate. It's something higher. And so we're going to, we already know we're going to be, we're have to live with something less and it's, it's far less than what it should be because we're just using that median in network rate. And then uh, we make it further a challenge because we, we make that the primary um, sort yeah. of pull in the well, arbitration. Well, before we get into the lawsuits, I mean, the, uh, the other thing is, I think, you know, air medical charges are so all over the board because oh. you've got some hospital, you know, and I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit, some of the hospital providers that aren't that savvy, that are not billing that much. So then those get calculated into this average. And then you've got some of the, you know, the criticism of some of the for-profits has been there. They were way, way mm-hmm. uh, out there. And then, you know, I, I had the fortunate experience of being at a not-for-profit you know, independent consortium where, yeah, you had to bill. I mean, we, you know, we had to, uh, to make ends meet and this was what it really cost us. And I remember doing, you know, negotiations on that, you know, that, um, but, you know, that all plays into this too, because it, it's so all over the place. Right. It, it and, does. And, and look, take the variable of for-profit, not-for-profit, um, private, public, Take that all out of it. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head, and that is there are different structures of programs, and those programs, in some cases, they have to they have to make ends meet, just like you and I do with our personal budgets, right? There's no subsidy there, yeah, and and they have to do it on the transport. Now, you could argue that even in the consortiums, if they have other sources of revenue, so you know, Air Medicine is a high fixed cost enterprise, right? So you got to pay for that overhead with a number of flights. But if you operate a large ground ambulance, you're getting some overhead contribution to that overhead that manages both air and ground, right? Uh, if you're a fire department and you operate a medical helicopter, but you also operate fire department, you might operate fire department EMS, that training overhead, the, the office staff all gets spread out over a larger bucket. So there's different, there's different business models or different operational models, if you will. Yes. And it doesn't have much to do, you know, to be honest, some of the not-for-profit consortiums that have to live in their means and, and live on a budget, their charges are, in many cases, every bit as high um, as the big, quote-unquote, for-profit publicly yes. traded guys. Yeah. Um, it's about your mechanism, right? And, and, of course, the argument on the hospital side is 
um, uh, and I've heard this for years when I was on the hospital side and, and it's true and not true. And that is, well, you hospital people don't care because you get all the downstream revenue. You don't care if your program loses money. And in, in the early days, in the 70s and 80s, that may have been the case. But most hospitals now are caught are forcing their programs, whether it's the Digestive Disorders Center or the flight program, you know, to to be financially responsible and financially viable. It's not like it was. There's still some of that, but it's not as prevalent as it was in the, in the 80s and such. So depending on your philosophy of your institution, yes, my hospital might get that downstream revenue, but they don't give it to me. I don't get credit for it. Right. I got to fight for that. Right. Um, and so I may, I may be arguing to negotiate every bit as hard with third-party payers as the program manager or the person you know, responsible for that business unit in certain circumstances. On the other hand, I've seen the opposite as well, where uh, we've talked to clients and we talk to their managed care people and say, hey, your flight program is being charged, uh, is being paid woefully under the industry standard. You should, next time your contract's up, you should negotiate a better rate. Um, and their reply in some cases is, uh, it's a zero-sum game for us. If I get more for the flight program, the payer is going to pay me less for the emergency. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Or whatever. Yeah. I experienced that firsthand, you know, at places that, you know, I'd get, get them to thinking that this is where the charges need to be. And then it, like the very next year, I said, well, we're going to have to lower that because, you know, <laughs> we want to go to the community and say our charges only increased 2%, but yet maybe certain areas went up 30% um, and others don't. I mean, and, you know, they're, they're trying to stay afloat and play the game with where they can mm -hmm. get reimbursed. I understand that. So yeah. what are the, what's driving the lawsuits then? Is it because of uh, the QPR? I mean, is that what the, I mean, Q yeah, the QPA, the QPA I, there, there's me. a couple of common themes. If you, if you looked at all the lawsuits that are out there and the Texas medical association was the first to file, uh, you know, as physicians in Texas. And then, uh, and then of course the air medical association filed and then the American medical association, American hospital association. And now there might be 16 or 17 suits. There are some individual physician practices that have filed. There are some oh. multiple specialty groups that have filed. Uh, the, I think the Georgia medical association filed last week or the week before the primary concerns are really, um, twofold. One is, um, it's the definition of the QPA and how it's computed. And the, and the second thing is that um, the QPA was made the primary tool that the arbiters can use. And, and, and the, the argument is that's really an overreach on the part of the agencies. That was not intended yeah. by the uh, members of Congress who signed, you know, who, who approved uh, the legislation. In fact, there was a letter written um, right before, I think it was right after the Texas Medical Association suit was filed. Uh, don't hold me to the timing exactly, but there were several hundred Congress people who wrote and said that these regulations weren't overreach. They misrepresented the intent that Congress had with the No Surprises Act by in these two particular instances. So um, clearly the agencies have sort of gone off the reservation a little bit. Um, and, and what caused the lawsuits ultimately was the fact that there wasn't enough time or interest on the part of the agencies to hear out the various constituency groups. Um, and, and look, in their defense, you know, again, they weren't given near enough time to put this thing in place. Um, and we're still 
even though it's it's in place. I mean, in December, and I haven't looked lately, but in December there were only nine or ten IDR entities who had applied through the portal to do these arbitrations. That's not just for air medicine. That's for all of oh, for everybody. Yeah, There's no way that 10 entities are going to be able to take the caseload and get them decided quickly enough. And they don't have, again, there's, there's specific timelines. Um, we found there, there's this open negotiation form that you have to file with the health plan. You have to notify the health plan. Um, and, and then also it goes through the, through this online portal to health and human services. So they're aware that you're in a negotiation now with the health plan. And um, the federal government put this form out. Nowhere on the form is the in, any case identifier, this template form that everybody's supposed to use. Uh, so the only thing that could distinguish patients is data service. So if you do two flights on the same data service with the same health plan, one, you want to have an open negotiation on the other one, you're happy with the payment. You send one in. There's no way for the health plan to know which of those two patients you've seen that day. So we, I called the helpline, you know, the the the, the uh, NSA helpline, and I was on the phone for a couple hours, and there was a conversation back and forth with supervisors and that sort of thing. And eventually, they came back and said, "Well, here's a here's an email address. This is our helpline email address. Write your, you know, describe your problem." And so I wrote that, um, you know, the second week of January. And haven't heard a response yet. And and we're trying to put those, we're trying to automate those forms because we're going to have to send them out on behalf of our clients, you know. So we're trying to make it automated. We don't want to leave any problem. We're using Smartsheets, the Smartsheet application to do that. And um, so we had to go ahead and just put uh, an identifier on the form, case number or or, uh, claim number on the form. And hopefully they won't get rejected. Now we sent our first one out actually this week. So with any luck, we'll, they'll accept it. The health plan will accept it. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how many people have filed already? I mean, yeah, well, we're we, right at the beginning of the process, right? Yeah. Normally, if you did a trip on January 1st, you might not see a payment because a lot of air medical. Yeah, true. Yeah. They're on paper review. You know, they want to see the, all the notes yeah. um, because of the dollar amounts and the complications, you know, the level of complexity of the cases. So if you send all that stuff out, and then, of course, most of the health plans, you know, they have 30 days. In some states, they have a limit. Some states, they don't. Um, so you get paid 30 days later. So for those trips we did in the beginning of January, first week in January, we're probably just getting payments the first week in February. You're looking at the number and figuring out the numbers within the range of acceptable to the client. Like in our case, we're representing our clients. And, and then you make a decision, you're going to put the notice out. So again, those first notices that we sent out just sort of went out this week. Yeah. And then they have 30, there's 30 business days to complete that process so, of negotiation. So. so we're still early stages. Doesn't this, uh, Ed, give a huge advantage to the insurance companies? Um, and they might not want the programs to be in network anymore. That's a great point you raised. And so uh, just, I didn't mention this early on, but um, the, the actual initial median in-network rate is computed on those agreements that were in place as of January 31st of 2019. So that's kind of the base year. Oh, wow. Um, so you're exactly right. If if that rate, that median in-network rate from January of 19 is lower than some of the existing, well, let's say I, I had a new negotiation 
with the local health plans in my area during COVID, you know, first part of COVID, maybe in the, maybe it was the summer of 20. And I, I made my case that, you know, we have all this extra cost and we're doing, you know, we can do fewer transports because we got to take the aircraft out of service and all those things you can, you can understand from running operations yourself. There's some legitimate arguments there. So if I got a favorable rate, a more favorable rate in 20, when I did my, my negotiation with the health plan, um, and now it's up again in the spring of 22, and we've already seen this happen. I can see where the payer saying, that's okay. We don't want to renew with you. Yeah. Or we don't want to renew with yeah. you at that rate because they know the number from back in January of 2019. And they know if that's the standard that they're going to win these arbitrations by paying instead of, you know, maybe that rate was at 75 cents on a dollar, 75% of charges and the rate you negotiated in, in 2020, which is going to expire in, in you know a couple of months, was 81 cents on a dollar. Well, they know that that rate's better. Why would they pay us? Why would they stay in network with us? Why wouldn't they just take their chances? Excuse me, let us be out of network and pay us the 75 percent because that's going to be the standard. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a it's a mess. I mean, what so what's the law lawsuit process? Where is that going to go and? Is, are these going to get combined or is there some big differences between the air medical and hospital and physician piece of this? Uh, yeah. Oddly enough, there aren't a lot of big differences. I mean, the, the same two gripes. I mean, the hospitals have a, another, a few other fish to fry, if you will. So for, for non-emergency cases, there's this thing called, uh, well, there's a bunch of notices that need to go out. They have to be in, I think it's 30 languages or something bizarre like that. Uh, if someone's out of network and they present to the hospital and they want to get an elective surgery done, like my situation I was describing last fall, um, I, I'm going to, I would now get a notice that says you're out of network um, for this service. So if you want to go ahead and have the procedure done here, that's fine, but we're letting you know. And then you have to provide a good faith estimate to the patient um, for what it's going to cost for that procedure. So that, I think some of the hospital side lawsuits are also include some of those concerns because it's not, you know, putting together those notices, even identifying truly out of network patients. And the hospitals also are responsible. They might be in network with that particular health plan for that patient. But if one of their hospital-based physician contractor groups is out of network, the hospital is responsible for making sure those notifications happen, even though yeah. the notices come from the physician group. Yeah. So it's complicated. It's been problematic. Um, I've been on a bunch of those calls with our hospital clients and where I serve as a board member, we've had lots of conversations about that, trying to comply. It's not easy. You know, software systems need to be modified, those sorts of things. So I think the hospitals have a few more gripes, but the, the, the common themes are the computation of the QPA and the fact that the QPA is used. So actually what recently happened, I think it was last week, um, is that the judge who was um, hearing both the AHA slash AMA case. So the hospital association, the physician medical association filed jointly. I see. Uh, and it was the same judge who um, Ames filed suit with um, in the same, same jurisdiction. And so the judge came last week and said, these are basically the same case. I'm joining the cases. And because Ames filed first, Ames is actually the lead plaintiff. So that case now is being, you know, the Ames team, of course, working in concert with the American Medical Association and AHA folks um, will, will try to adjudicate the case from a plaintiff perspective. 
So there's some deadlines and things that are, you know, there's discovery, as you know, with all these kinds of things, information back. But th- that could go on for months, right? I mean, it's. Yeah, it could. I mean, yeah. there was some of the initial filings in many lawsuits were, um, you know, were sort of uh, requesting summary judgment and relief, immediate relief from the No Surprises Act. Um, I don't think anyone was successful in getting that determination. It's still, this is still a challenge for patients and we still need to get patients out of the middle. So I don't think there's any appetite judicially or otherwise um, to roll back that balanced billing prohibition. Oh, sure. Yeah. We got to have that. And if we have that, then we have to have these other tools in place. So the question is how quickly can we resolve the issue on the, on things that are going to impact arbitration and open negotiations so that we can carry the process forward. I would be shocked if somebody rules that, um, the, the prohibition gets struck down. I just don't think there's. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think you're right on that. Um, and uh, has ACT did not file a suit, right? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, ACT did not join the AIM suit. Um, in fact, last week or the week before, ACT filed uh, an amicus brief, which is um, other interested parties right. when a lawsuit like this is filed can weigh in. Uh, one way or another. And so um, ACT made a decision to um, file an amicus brief not in support of one aspect of the Ames lawsuit. So one of the elements of the Ames lawsuit, and this I think also was a part of the American Hospital Association lawsuit, is um, for for there to be multiple QPAs. So in in the specific um, aspect of the Ames lawsuit, um, Ames had had proposed that there would be a different QPA for those that are sort of hospital owned um, because of some of the factors you and I talked about earlier in the conversation. And um, the ACT membership, uh, the ACT board did not feel that that was a reasonable way to go. Um, you know, there was some sense, I think, listening, and, and I was on the, uh, the ACT membership call last week, um, that, um, you know, it would, it would result in um, hospital-based programs, who's, many of whom already have poor reimbursement because of some of the things we talked about, getting poorer reimbursement because if they had their own QPA and they were lumped together and not with the rest of the world, that that reimbursement would drive down even further um, and cause more heartache on the hospital side. Um, and so uh, ACT did not uh, elected to, to disagree with the lawsuit in that regard. As reported by the ACT um, board on the call, they do agree with um, some aspects of the lawsuit, primarily the fact that the QPA is not a fair rate in the way it's currently. The only factor, right. Yeah, and the fact that it's the only factor. I think um, the ACT membership and I think the ACT board has communicated on that call, um, uh, you know, believe that those two things are problematic um, in the way the current regulation stands. Yeah, because ACT is always, uh, when I was involved, I think before always, trying to differentiate, you know, the types of services, you know, types of crews, the types of aircraft, the types of services. So, yes. And and I think you probably remember this from your time there is, uh, you know, uh, ACT has made a proposal already. And, uh, you know, it's one of the positions that ACT has, which I, I personally support, you know, it's an interesting thing. We don't have levels of service on the air medical side. Right. We have fixed wing and rotor on the ground side. We have levels of service and that makes an awful lot of sense. Uh, again, it goes back, going back to the negotiated rulemaking process on the, on the ambulance fee schedule. Uh, when we made the argument, not we, but when the, 
the firefighters and fire chiefs and American Ambulance Association made the argument that there are readiness costs associated with having an ALS truck. There's equipment, there's, you have different crew, different personnel on board. You should get paid for that. Of course, it was HICFA back then, not CMS, um, which represented Medicare, which was the Medicare agency said, we're not opening up that can of worms because everybody's just going to go out and hire paramedics yeah. and put equipment on the trucks and they're going to expect every call to get paid, even if they did nothing. And so that's, that's how the idea of ALS-1 and ALS-2 came to be. ALS-1 recognized that when you get a legitimate call, someone with chest pain, and you roll out with an advanced life support equipped vehicle, there are costs associated with that. If you get there and it turns out that chest pain was really someone who has a little bit of indigestion after having a big meal, and you transport them basically BLS skill-wise, you don't do any advanced procedures on them, you get paid ALS-1, which is higher than BLS, so you get some compensation for those readiness costs. Whereas when you go and that chest pain turns out to be a cardiac arrest and you empty the drug box, you get paid ALS-2, which is that higher level. So it, we talked about that cardiac example we just used earlier in the conversation today. Yeah. Conceivably, that might be a air medical transport you know, stable level. And that patient who was unstable and used a bunch of medications on would be the next level up. And then that third level is that complex patient that's on an LVAD and we send a specialty team and all those things that you know we do in the air medical world. And so I think that that makes perfect sense. It fits the paradigm of REAM. It's how we bill in the emergency. Yes, right. Technical fees. There's levels of service based on complexity of patients and review of systems and things. So it's certainly something that makes sense in the reimbursement paradigm. For sure. Yeah. And there also, even on the ground side, needs to be uh, you know, a critical care rate. I know there's a specialty care, but really, you know, almost the same services that you're offering in the air, but by ground. And that's been a big disadvantage for some of the air medical programs to get into that because it, it, right. it doesn't make the money. Um, one other question, is it the, the reason that um, ground ambulance was not included in the No Surprises Act because of the fees? Is it just because the fees are so much less or was there another reason? I think that's the primary reason. Again, that's Ed's opinion. I don't, I don't have yeah. any particular policy insight on that, but I think, look, air medicine got on the radar screen with this larger issue of balance and surprise billing because of the orders of magnitude. If you get yeah. a balanced ambulance bill for 150 bucks for most, most patients, it's not going to, they're not going to lose their home over that. But when you get a balanced bill for $20,000, yeah. um, that's problematic for a lot of working families. And so I think that's why air medicine got lumped in with larger, yeah, yeah. Um, no surprises act issue. Now there, interestingly, there are some, um, there are some state laws that have already been passed. There are some state regulations that have been in place that affect the ground side. And let's not forget one of the reasons that I think air medicine got lumped in with the NSA is because um, the airline deregulation act made it next to impossible for states to regulate this matter relative to air medical transport. On the ground ambulance side, if there's a huge issue with balanced billing in a particular jurisdiction, they have the wherewithal through state legislation to address the issue. But air medicine doesn't, because of the ADA, doesn't allow, and st several states have tried to regulate it. So and that's an interesting distinction too. It's a point to worth mentioning is that that whole process we described that's, that's um, enumerated in the uh, NSA 
is superseded if there's an existing state process in place um, to accomplish the same thing, to, to adjudicate um, a disparity in, in the balanced billing in an out-of-network billing situation, um, the process will be defaulted into whatever the state process is. That's yeah. what the legislation says. So again, mm. you know, what I described in terms of open negotiation and IDR and stuff, if there's a, if there's a process in the state, we'll have to follow that state process. Which makes it even more complicated. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, you know, just talking to, uh, you know, Tom Allenstein the other day at MedFlight and Columbus, and they just recently passed and put into effect, I think the 15th or 14th of January, um, a balanced billing uh, act in Ohio. So, uh, which does apply to ground. Um, oh. So the double whammy of having to live with the NSA on the med flight side, but they have a giant ground operation, their med care operation. Right. It's now subject to um, the provisions of the Ohio NSA. Yeah. Well, one, one other question on all this, how has this affected the membership programs? I noticed that classic is, you know, was dropping their membership program. Is this going to uh, be the end of membership programs for air medical? I mean, I think that's almost by design. I think, um, you know, and I, I had the opportunity to, to be a part of the Air Ambulance uh, Patient Billing Advisory Committee process that the Department of Transportation went through. Unfortunately, there are a lot of good people who served on that committee and, and some of the subcommittees um, spent a lot of time trying to address this issue of balanced billing and surprise medical bills. And, and the DOT staff put in hours and hours and, and they came up with some recommendations. But one of the, one of the issues um, that that group studied, uh, and I, we had a number of conversations in a couple of different subcommittees, was membership programs. There, there is this sense, uh, and, and I, I don't, I'm not directly involved in any membership programs, and we never had one when I was on the operations side. you know. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a sense that they are all over the board, and some of them are operated more reputably than others, let's say. And so I got the sense from the DOT and the HHS people who are part of that process that they wanted to see membership programs go away. Well, certainly with the NSA being passed and there being no risk um, for patients to get a balanced bill, that takes a, the wind out of a lot of the sales of these membership programs that have been sold over the years. Because if you don't have that exposure, why do you need to spend the money on the membership program? Spend that money on an HSA or you know, um, some other mechanism to help you handle your high deductible health plan uh, exposure and some of those out-of-pocket expenses. So an air medical or even a ground membership becomes less and less um, uh, valuable to you if, if you're in a jurisdiction that has limitations on out-of-network balance point patients. Right. Right. Well, um, great conversation. I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, on the Personal side, tell us about uh, your family, your wife, Joyce, your children, grandchildren. You've got a big family. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, <laughs> living the dream, you know, for me. Uh, just turned 60 this year, and, uh, and Joyce is a couple of months behind me, but we've been married a long time, and, um, you know, she's still doing it. She's a, a nurse practitioner and works some urgent care and some primary care, and uh, and uh, so we're blessed and we've got, as you probably remember, we've got three sons, uh, right. you know, Matthew is uh, in his early thirties, works for the FBI. Adam is late twenties and works for Ernst and Young is 
doing well. And, and Eric just is uh, graduating from medical school here. He's uh, match day is March 18th. So we're convening uh, in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Everybody's getting together. We're going to celebrate wherever he ends up. What's um, he want to go into? He's interested in pediatrics. So he's, oh, nice. And really pediatric genetics is something that's really oh. a passion for him. So they're all three married. They have wonderful wives. I mean, we are, again, very blessed. Um, all three of these women are fantastic, bright um, folks. And of course, Matthew and Sarah have, um, we have a grandson. Jack turns a year um, here next week. And, um, and then they have another one on the way. So oh, we'll have great. One. We'll have two. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I know you've always talked about your family over the years. Nice to follow. Boy, they grow up fast though don't they i mean it's just like all of a sudden they really boom, do. they're in their 30s yeah yeah it's amazing so. well you know better than anybody you you know you're, you're chasing you've got adult children out there you're yep. chasing their own trying to keep up with it's yep and it's fun to watch them go through you know getting married buying houses having kids career changes you know uh they have opportunities now and i i'll tell you the one thing about this generation that um that's eye-opening for me. My father worked in the post office for 38 years. Um, I've had essentially three career, three big career jobs. I mean, I've worked an average of 12 and a half years at each of my big, you know, I've died, you know, I was a stock boy in a grocery store when I was 15 or 16 or something, but my real professional life has been with three different organizations. Young people today, if they're in a job more than a year and a half, they feel like they're missing an opportunity or leaving money, yeah. you know, so it's funny to watch them go through those, you know, you know, it might be the right time. The headhunters are starting to call, but I'm looking for a certain kind of role. I'm, I want that balance of quality of life. And <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I, my oldest son, I think he, he's ended up in the healthcare arena too, doing, um, uh, you know, implementing um, electronic medical records for hospitals uh, set of has their firm that hires the IT people that helps hospitals. And, but he's been with like five different firms. And I said, I, you know, I, I can't relate to this. I've worked on kind of the not-for-profit side my whole career. I don't understand all these things, but uh, he is, uh, it, neither of them were married, but he he's getting married now. So that's Alex and that's nice to, uh, to see. So, so what uh, what do you like to do for fun, Ed? What's your? Well, you know, I'm I'm uh, I love to get out and ride the bike, and I know you do hardcore riding, long distance riding, but for me, um, you know, I enjoy you know the rails to trails thing in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. You know, when we come down south uh, into South Carolina, it's a there's a great opportunity. It's scenic, you know, up north you're riding along the riverbanks in Western Pennsylvania. It's beautiful, great way to spend the summer or afternoon. After work, great stressor. So we love to ride the bikes. I'm still, I love to fish and uh, and and I just really enjoy those opportunities to be with the grandson. So we're going up, we're heading to Richmond this weekend to babysit our grandson while the Matt and Sarah are off to a wedding or something this weekend. It's one of the best things in the world. Yeah, that's that's uh, fantastic. Yeah, the uh, I wanted to give a call out to Quick Med claims for supporting the national ems memorial bike ride and also the pennsylvania one i think that's that's great and you know because i've gotten to meet uh, know a lot of people from uh east east coast you know i participated more in the midwest ride but it's been fun and then everybody's sort of on this strava thing where you're 
following all these different routes all over the place. <clears throat> and I, I can um, upload their route into a Garmin and then actually ride it on my indoor trainer. So I can say I rode in Western PA. So, oh, man, yeah. So yeah. Kudos to the, to the riders, you know, yourself and others. I mean, you know, Doug Garrison, I think has made the ride a yeah. bunch of times. So he's been around the industry yeah. for a long time. And those guys really, it's amazing. And having, you know, been a part of the memorial service for a couple of years, um, it, it's a poignant moment when those bikes, you know, arrive on, on Friday night and the families are there and, uh, yeah, it's great. And kudos to the folks, you know, Jana Williams and that group, uh, you know, Craig Yale and a bunch of others, Tom Liebman, um, Steve, Steve Worth from PWW, those, those folks yep. that board, um, you know, the testers, uh, Rachel and Ron, <laughs> they devote endless hours of time to make sure that, uh, you know, those families are recognized as they should be. Yeah, it's it's quite an experience because I, I like bicycling. And then it was actually um, Tammy Chapman that told me I should ride in that. And then the first time I did, I go, oh, my gosh, this is just <laughs> unbelievable. You know, it's just uh, it's a very touching experience. And last couple of years, it's been I've done more virtual because of COVID stuff. But uh, uh, hopefully this year will be back on. So when I. You have Go to ahead. try that Allegheny Trail thing. You got to do the Western Pennsylvania to Washington D.C. No, I yeah, I know. I'd like to. I'd, I'd like to do that one. I've talked to talked to those guys and said I'd like to be down there, back in the back in my original uh, area. So, um, well, Ed, I, I know I've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate you being on the the podcast and uh, your expertise and time are very much appreciated. I'm sure the listeners will enjoy learning more about this. Uh, thanks, Edward. It's, it's a privilege to be with you and, and please keep up the great work. I know it's a lot of work on your side, but, you know, it's important to keep, um, you know, the folks around the industry current on what's happening and, and give them an opportunity to, to stay abreast of the important issues we face. Yeah, and I'm a student of history, too, and I think it's good for people to understand. That's why I like to go into backgrounds to understand where you came from and how you, you know, ended up there. And same with with other podcast and i look forward to working with you on the uh, mtlog one so yep. thanks so much ed thanks thanks for listening to this episode of the air medical today podcast please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com itunes or on the air medical today youtube channel air medical today is also as i've said on facebook twitter linkedin pinterest instagram and youtube and you can find the links on the website remember if you would like to be a sponsor or provide feedback please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052 a very special thanks to stanley reeves of room tunes for providing his song track five for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com slash stanley.reeves.39. Take care and continue to be safe, especially with this pandemic. Mm-hmm.